Hello, Daughter P. And hello, Dr. P. We are going to start today's episode with an apology. Although really I should be issuing the apology because I am in fact the person that derailed our original plan for today's episode. You are indeed. You are the guilty one. We were going to do a review of previous episodes, do some updates. Thankfully, no major edits, no major confessions that we got things wrong. But you came to me with something the other day that we thought we just needed to address now. It's quite a timely issue. Yes. So I heard about in Alabama, they were in their biggest hospital or something. They weren't allowing IVF treatments anymore. And I kind of had that moment of, you know, I've heard the term IVF a lot. And I know that the concept of it is just to be able to help somebody, like a woman, have a baby that maybe couldn't otherwise. But I actually don't really know how it works. And I thought that there might be other people seeing these headlines about IVF and thinking, well, I kind of know what it is, but I actually don't really know how it works. And I think before coming to me, you actually did a bit of a poll in work, didn't you, to see, okay, was it just you who didn't know about this stuff or other people that you work with who are about the same age as you? Did they know about these things? And it turns out that they had similar gaps in their knowledge. Yeah, most of us really had the same kind of view of it, of like, yeah, we know it's something that people can do when they have a hard time getting pregnant or maybe same-sex couples might use to get pregnant, but we were like, what's the actual mechanics of it? We don't really know. One of my co-workers was, I think they implant an egg in you. And then another one was, no, I don't think so. I think you must already have the egg. And someone was like, I think that they take the egg that you had previously, they fill it and then they put it back inside you. And basically we realized, okay, well, we can't all be right. So at least two or three of us are not getting this Correct. <laughs> okay, yeah. Sounds like we should talk about this. I think it would be a good idea to just do a quick overview of the Alabama situation so people understand what inspired us to do this. But we're just going to make one thing clear before we do that. And would you like to talk about that, Tess? Yeah, so we aren't going to get into the politics of it. Partly, 50% of this podcasting duo can't actually even vote in this country. In addition to that, we wanted this podcast to be a place where we talked about the science, but that we didn't really talk about our personal beliefs or political beliefs that much in it. I think you can get that in every other corner of the media right now. So we are going to stay out of the politics side of it and just talk about what the actual science is and how it works. Do you think that's fair? I think that's absolutely perfect because what we're aiming to do here is help people understand the science so that they can make an informed opinion on these things. So without further ado, let's just remind ourselves how our discussion today started. And it started in a most bizarre situation in clinic, I think it was, in Mobile, Alabama, where this person wandered into an unlocked storage area and picked up, presumably had a little bit of a nosy at, and dropped a couple of frozen embryos on the floor. It beggars belief, really, as to how this would happen, doesn't it? Yeah, I actually didn't know that that's how this started. Yeah, so after that... There was a case that went to court. Um, The clinic was sued for a failure to secure this area. And obviously, the door should have been locked. Somebody should not have been able to walk in there, pick up a couple of somebody's very, very precious frozen embryos and drop them on the floor because, as you might imagine, they were unusable after that. The clinic was found to have violated the state's wrongful death act. And now we've got a word death in there, which is a pretty emotionally charged word. This doesn't sound like a science thing anymore now. Now, does it? Yeah, I think when you hear the word death, that brings a certain magnitude to the conversation. So that's really interesting. 
So they won that case, is that correct? The court agreed that the clinic was guilty of its failure to secure this area and that they had violated the Wrongful Death Act. So my next thing was, I didn't know what Wrongful Death Act encompasses. It's the kind of thing, you know the words, but what do they mean in legalese? Well, apparently that means a negligent act that leads or led to someone's death. That's where this whole story started, really, because in this summary judgment that the court provided, they found the clinic guilty of this negligent act that led to someone's death. Well, the court then is saying that the someone would be who? The embryo? Yes. And they then used language. They didn't actually refer to the embryo, I don't believe. They used instead the expression extra uterine children. Oh, interesting. I haven't heard that phrase before. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but that's really what got, for instance, IVF clinics quite worried because when we're referring to embryos as extra uterine children and we're referring to embryos being dropped on the floor as someone's death, then that's making IVF clinics very nervous about how they utilise embryos. What do they do, for instance, with embryos that maybe aren't required? Maybe a woman's had a successful one, two or three pregnancies and now there are extra embryos stored that aren't going to be used. All of this is a very tricky issue, which we're not really going to talk about, but that's where this whole story started. Very interesting indeed. I did not know the origin of it. By the way, before we move on, as we do like to, on this podcast, do a bit of jargon busting, extra uterine children. That's quite the expression, isn't it? Have you encountered that? Any guesses at what that might mean? Well, I guess extraterrestrial is like an alien. Ooh. So extra-uterine children would be like a child, but not like a regular child. An extraterrestrial child. That's... (laughs) I like that. And that's kind of reasonable. If you think about extraterrestrial terrestrial is to do with the earth the extra means beyond or outside of so oh oh, 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 so beyond uterus child yes like it's a child that's not in the uterus yet correct Woohoo! so (laughs) there we go if if our listeners gain nothing else from this podcast from now on in a science expression if you hear the word or the prefix at the beginning of a word extra it means outside of i can see why these clinics are concerned because that's the kind of debate i feel especially in america is at what point does it become a child yes and that's typically where the debate focuses i think you're absolutely right there and we both have our opinions but that's not what we're here for today we're going to talk science so where did you want to start on this because you came to me and said i'm just really not very sure and turns out neither are my friends what kinds of questions were you asking So I was asking them, almost as if you've got a big funnel, we were starting right at the top and then figuring we would get into more specific questions, but then realised we actually were stuck at the top of the funnel because we couldn't figure really much else out. But we started with, okay, well, we know IVF is for people that struggle getting pregnant. Is that the only time that it would be used? Ooh, well, that's not where I thought you were going to start, but that is actually a brilliant question because, no, IVF isn't just used for people who are struggling to get pregnant and require assistance. Although that would be the most common usage, people who've got certain genetic diseases in their family, like cystic fibrosis, for example, they might choose to use IVF in vitro fertilisation, literally in the glass fertilisation. That's what IVF means. They might choose to use that because something called pre-implantation diagnosis can be done on the embryo. A couple of cells can be taken from the embryo in the Petri dish and they can be genetically tested 
to see if that particular embryo that's been produced in the IVF process is carrying the genetic disease that this family seems to be suffering with. So typically, when IVF has been carried out, several embryos will be produced and at around about day three of the time in the Petri dish that these cells have been dividing, these little clumps of cells, a couple of the cells can be taken from each of the developing embryos and genetic testing can be run on them. So the idea being if you've got five embryos there, you can genetically test a couple of cells from each embryo and maybe you've got three embryos that, yay great, don't have this genetic issue and two that unfortunately do. So the doctors can choose to implant the embryo without the genetic condition. So that's incredibly important. It's not that common really compared to the IVF for people who are just struggling to get pregnant without assistance. But it's really, really important because some of these diseases like cystic fibrosis can be pretty devastating. So for people to be able to make some choices about potentially not creating embryos or not implanting embryos carrying that disease, that's a pretty important thing for some people to be able to make that decision. Oh yeah, I'm sure that they don't take that lightly. No, exactly. So, okay, next question. What actually is it? They take the egg from you, they make the egg and the baby in a petri dish and then they put the egg back in you? Is that what it is? Well, yes. We could expand on that a little bit and say the egg is going to come from one of two places. If we're thinking about the woman who wants to be pregnant, the egg is either going to come from her or it's going to be a donor egg. Some amazingly altruistic person has donated eggs and these are being used in a different woman. Now, there are reasons why that might happen. Again, it could be that the woman who's trying to get pregnant, it could be that she has some genetic disease. It's best not to use her eggs. It could be that she's, and this is probably the commonest reason, she's older and her eggs aren't of great quality or she's just not producing that many. And so donor eggs can definitely be used in certain situations. So yes, we're taking an egg either from the woman who wants to be pregnant or a donated egg. And we're probably going to take actually several eggs. We're going to put them in a Petri dish and we're going to incubate them. We're going to put sperm in there, tens of thousands of sperm cells. And we're going to hope that fertilization occurs. So now I'm going to ask you a question. What's fertilization? Um, The important part. Oh, that's a good answer. But I suspect it's a bit of a fudge that you're not quite sure beyond that. Well, I feel like the fertilization part would be when the sperm meets the egg and they do the important part. They make it become a baby. But I don't know what the correct uh, phrasing for that would be. I think you got it really, Tess. The important point is that there are genes in the head of the sperm, genes from dad, and there are genes in the nucleus of the egg the genes that are coming from the mum. And by the way, I'm using, I shouldn't really perhaps use dad and mum here, but I mean these in the biological sense, the biological mother, biological father. So we've got the genes from the biological father in the head of the sperm. We've got the genes from the biological mother in the nucleus of the egg. And the sperm head has to penetrate into the egg for the genes of the biological father to basically partner up with the genes that are from the mother in the nucleus of the egg. Yeah, so I actually didn't realise that that's what's happening. So they're basically putting multiple eggs and multiple sperm inside one petri dish and then seeing who pairs up? More or less. The only difference really between the egg and the sperm is that we'll have a few egg cells in there, literally maybe five, something like that, and we will have thousands upon thousands of sperm cells in there. Now, fertilisation is the head of one sperm entering the nucleus of one egg. But 
you know, it, this thing about takes a village. It takes thousands of sperm to be incubated with the eggs because all of those sperm that aren't actually going to hand off their genes into the egg, only one sperm cell can do that. The rest of them, turns out we need them. They help that one sperm penetrate into the egg. Is that because the sperm needs a little bit of crowd support and it wants like its friends to be like, you've got this, buddy, you got it? <laughs> Moral support is always a great thing. In this instance, we actually need them to be a little bit more active than that. We need those additional sperm cells to help break down the wall the outside wall of the egg so that that one sperm cell that's going to win, that's going to get the trophy, its genes are going to pair up with the genes within the nucleus of the egg. Those additional sperm are required to help break down the wall of the egg so that one lucky sperm can get in there. Okay, so basically what you're saying is the sperms are like, it's like a rugby team and you've got, they're making a scrum and then they're pushing forward and then so that your fast little wing can get in there at the end score. Yes, but they're like a rugby team of about 50 plus thousand. Wow, okay. I, I think I get it now. Now, it might be a good point to mention that there is something called ICSI, I-C-S-I, intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Any thoughts? Intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Yeah. Intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Oh, you got it. Cytoplasm is part of the cell. Oh, yes. Is it the gooey stuff that it sits in, like the general inside of the cell? Yeah, okay, so we've got our egg. We've got the nucleus inside of the egg, which is where the um, DNA is, where our genes are. And then outside of the nucleus but still inside the egg that's where you're going to find the cytoplasm absolutely fabulous you know we started this discussion with extra we said was outside of uh-huh what was the i intra so inside of yes so inside of this what was the last part sperm and fertilization oh close intra cytoplasmic sperm injection okay so inside of the cell the sperm gets injected Oh my goodness, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Remember the role of these lots and lots and lots of sperm cells was to actually help the one sperm cell get its way in there. Some uh -huh. men just don't produce enough sperm or they don't produce enough sperm that are good swimmers and they just can't get that one sperm cell for whatever reason, it can't get through the wall of the egg and pair off its genes with the genes from the mum. ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection, is something that happens in a Petri dish. And instead, what the scientists, what the medics are doing there is they're taking an individual sperm cell and injecting it straight through the wall of the egg into the egg. And so why would you do this? So for men who, whose sperm is not, unfortunately, successful. They don't have enough sperm. They have sperm, but they don't swim very well. Their sperm are not good quality. So ICSI is really all about when the male part of the process is not working successfully. There's something wrong with the sperm. When we think about IVF, in vitro fertilization, we're typically thinking about a situation where perhaps the problem is more likely to be with the woman who wants to be pregnant. There's a problem with the eggs. But I remember the last statistic that I read was something like about one-sixth of all cases of infertility or subfertility, nobody ever can find a cause for them. The medical profession can't say there's a problem with the eggs, there's a problem with the sperm, 
the fertilization, successful pregnancy just doesn't seem to be occurring. Okay, so basically what I'm getting so far, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, a couple, let's say we have a couple that's having a hard time getting pregnant, so they go for IVF. They're going to remove one, we're going to remove multiple of her eggs in, I'm assuming, like a surgical procedure. Correct. And then, okay, and then they're going to take his sperm or whoever's the sperm donor or whoever's sperm, and then they're going to put it in a Petri dish with all the eggs so that the sperm can do their thing. And then once they've then got a fertilized egg, they're going to take that egg or maybe two and put them back in the uterus so that it can grow into a baby, which I'm guessing is why it feels like a lot of IVF babies are twins. Is that because they're like trying to give it the best shot as possible? So they're going to put in multiple eggs. First of all, that was a gorgeous summary. Loved it. And secondly, yes, I think you're spot on there. Older people than you might remember some cases there was somebody called Octo Mum who had... <gasps> Nadia eight... Suleiman Mum, I remember that. Oh, well, there we go then. Yes, and she had eight babies as a result of IVF. And that was back in the days when the thought was, if we put these embryos back into the woman, they're not all going to implant. So let's put in lots because some will fail to implant. Implanting being when they embed themselves in the wall of the uterus and start to form a placenta. We can talk about that more in a minute if you'd like. Um, but the thinking was, if we want to have one or two babies, let's put in eight and we'll get one or two babies that will actually develop. And of course, then there were some very well-known cases. I think what's a face would be another one. Oh, gosh, Kate and... Oh, John and Kate plus eight. John and Kate plus eight. So obviously she had six in one go, didn't she? Yes, sex tablets. And then people realised that, okay, well... It wasn't worth the risk of having these multiple, multiple pregnancies because that's actually very dangerous for the woman. And the more embryos there are growing in a uterus at once, the higher the risk is that one or two or all of those will die as well. So there's a sweet spot, if you like. And I think, and and I don't really want to be quoted on this, but I think now you hear about people having two embryos, one or two embryos implanted. So yes, that would certainly support the case of there being more twin pregnancies as a result of IVF than perhaps we see in non-assisted pregnancies. Okay, so now I think this might be partly getting to the issue in Alabama and in other places is if they do this process and they're like, okay, great, we've got 10 fertilized eggs, but we can't put 10 in because we don't want you to be a 10 tuplet or whatever the number of 10 is. <laughs> I think um, it would be a decatoplet, but I like ten tuplets. Got a great ring to it. I think we can all agree that ten tuplet makes way more sense than decatoplet. <laughs> I think we can. <laughs> yep, go for it. Um, so I'm assuming this is where it gets sticky. Is okay. Well, let's say okay, we're going to implant three. What do we do with the other seven? Do they save them? Do they throw them out? Do they donate them? I mean, I'm they, assuming you can't donate them. But no, that you can. Oh, but you, so the woman and I mean, the couple would be able to decide, we have these extra ones, we're not going to use, we can donate them, is that? Yes. Yes, they absolutely can be donated to other people who are not able to produce embryos. But oftentimes the embryos will be kept at a very, very, very low temperature, almost minus negative 200 degrees Celsius, which is a whopping negative 300 degrees Fahrenheit. They'll be kept there in case they're going to be used by the people 
whose genetic material they contain in the future or, and that is indeed one of the issues that's now been raised in Alabama, will they have to be kept forever rather than at some point in the future destroyed because if Alabama's considering them to be extra uterine children, would destroying them even after 30 years, let's say, would that count as an act of wrongful death? So what would you actually call them at that stage when they haven't been implanted back in you yet, but they, the sperm and the egg have fertilized? What would you call that? You know, that's another really great question because I always think it's quite confusing for people. The, the one I always wonder if people understand is, well, what's the difference between an embryo and a fetus, for example? Because you hear people talking about embryos and then you hear people talking about fetuses. So that's a timing thing. A fetus is a fetus at about 11 weeks of pregnancy. So when you're almost three months pregnant, your embryo has now become a fetus at about 11 weeks of pregnancy. 11 weeks of pregnancy would be 11 weeks after your last period. That's how pregnancy weeks are calculated. Prior to that, the little thing that is implanted and developing in the uterus is an embryo. Now, when we go right back before that, so before 11 weeks, it's an embryo. If we go right back to the day of fertilization, which when we're talking IVF is occurring in the Petri dish, the fertilized egg, so inside the egg, there's now the head of the sperm and the genetic material from the sperm is now pairing up with the genetic material of the mum inside the nucleus of the egg. That fertilized cell, that's called a zygote. Yes, I remember that from biology. And that one cell divides to become two, divides to become four, divides to become six. Uh, no, it doesn't divide to become six. Divides to become eight, 16, 32. Sorry for my horrible math there. And as it's going through these divisions, it gains different names. But when it's sort of 70-ish to 100 cells, at that point, we're going to be calling it a blastocyst. And you could also say a blastocyst is a type of embryo. Calling it a blastocyst is just a little bit more specific. So when we have the blastocyst, it's no more than about 100 cells. That's going to be about day five in the Petri dish, which is a very young embryo. And that blastocyst is what's then going to be put back into the woman. So it's about 70 to 100 cells big. And it kind of looks a little bit like a fried egg. That That's what's getting put back in the woman? Yes. But not, I'm assuming, not fried egg sized. Uh, <laughs> good point. Thank you for asking me that because I would have hated for people to have gone from here. No, a microscopic fried egg size. Because when you look under the microscope, you'd see a round thing that's got a sort of another roundish thing inside of it that's much smaller than the whole. And what you've got there is two types of cell. So this blastocyst, 70 to 100 cells big, Look at it under the microscope, looks a little bit like a fried egg with egg white and the yolk. The cells that are forming the little structure that looks like the yolk, those are cells which are actually going to become the placenta, this structure that exists between the developing fetus and the mother. And the placenta helps good stuff come from the, the mother to the fetus and helps waste products come from the embryo then fetus back to the mother because the mother both gives good stuff to the developing pregnancy and she takes away all the trash as well. She's just a hero. The placenta is doing that? Yeah, so the placenta is this little interface between mom and the embryo 
that then becomes a fetus at about week 11. And all of the exchange of the good stuff and the not good stuff occurs. So good stuff comes from mom to embryo slash fetus. Waste products come from embryo slash fetus through the placenta to mom and mom gets rid of them. Oh, yeah. Placenta deserves more credit there. Oh, really. I think absolutely. Should... Definitely. In fact, can you believe that there isn't a happy placenta day already? They're happy pretty much every other day out there. I know. You know what, though? I bet there is a national placenta day. Ooh, look it up, Tess. Um, okay, well, the bad news is they don't get a day. The good news is I think they get a whole month. What? It says Accreta Awareness Month. Oh, okay, so that's actually a type of condition in pregnancy where the placenta gets a little bit too stuck to the wall of the uterus. Oh, so there's no National Placenta Day, but there's various, like, placenta-related things. So okay. October is Accreta Awareness Month. Oh, I'm a bit disappointed now. Perhaps we ought to lobby government for one. I was about to say, we, we can make the change. Be the change you wish to see in the world. We'll go for that test. Now, I'm a bit mindful that we've got completely off track. So just to go yes, back, sorry. we were talking about our blastocyst looking under the microscope. It's going to be a pretty good microscope because it's going to be very small, smaller than the head of a pin, I would say. And this blastocyst, the yolk, if you like, is going to be full of cells that are going to become the placenta, this much underappreciated, super valuable organ. And what maybe looks a bit like the egg white, those are the cells that are going to give rise to everything that we are. Our nervous system, our bicep muscles, our blood vessels, you name it, that's all going to come from the cells that are forming what looks like the egg white in this blastocyst. Okay, gotcha. So you'd think all the goodness is in the yolk, but it's actually in the egg white. Ooh, well, that's a really good way of looking at it. Yes, the egg yolk is the rich, creamy bit, isn't it, In when we eat it? But in this case, it's the egg white, which really gives rise to, ultimately, hopefully, the baby. Now, just to be clear, the placenta is invaluable. If the placenta doesn't form properly, that pregnancy is not going to continue. I know that we got a bit sciencey there, but I did think it was important to mention that because I do always wonder when people think about IVF and they think about embryos being implanted back into the uterus, I always wonder if people think of an embryo, perhaps how they've seen pictures of embryos, you know, with the, well, if I said to you embryo, and you were thinking of an image of an embryo, what would that conjure up for you? Probably that thing where it looks like a tiny, tiny baby, but it's like not, like almost looks kind of like a dolphin. You sort of make out the arms and the legs and then like a giant head. Yes, the giant head. I always think that's the distinctive feature. And then on some of those pictures, you might see a bit of a tail as well. That's not what the embryo looks like when it is transplanted back into the woman for implantation. This is occurring, as we said, about five days after the egg and the sperm cells were incubated together in the Petri dish. And what we have here is a very, very small embryo, a specific type of embryo at this stage called a blastocyst. And it's just this little, tiny little bundle of cells. And you can just see these two regions in the blastocyst, the egg white and the egg yolk. But you cannot, there is not a developing arm, a developing heart, a developing brain that's not present at this stage. It's just this tiny little bundle of cells. Because I'm assuming science is very impressive and always evolving, but that we don't have the ability yet to fertilize the egg and then fully grow the baby outside of the body. We do not. By that logic, it would have to be put in before it starts that process, right? Like 
you wouldn't be putting it in where it's already half made because if that was the case then you could continue to make the baby outside of the mum. Well I think that's a very good way of thinking about it. Research has been carried out to look at what's the optimum time for implanting these embryos and day five really seems to be it. After day five the chance of the embryo implanting into the wall of the uterus and then successfully going on to go through all the stages, develop as an embryo and then as a fetus and then get to hopefully 38 to 40 weeks, the odds of that drastically drop off once the embryo, blastocyst I should say, is implanted after day five. So yeah, there's a very narrow little window there during which it needs to be put back into the woman's uterus. Unless they're being frozen, is that right? Unless they're being frozen, exactly. And if they're frozen, then that's going to occur at about the same time. They're going to be frozen at about day five. As we said, in liquid nitrogen, super, super cold and can stay there almost indefinitely, I believe. Like uh, Walt Disney. Well, is that true? Has he? Has no, he I actually to... don't know if that's true. I think no, that, that's... but a... he's famous, <laughs> isn't he, for that? For cryogenics or something, isn't that right? So, yeah, supposedly he's like frozen somewhere under the grounds of Disney and so that he could be resurrected when we have the ability to do so. Good story. Not sure if we believe it. So, <sighs> any more questions? Okay, so, so we figured out how the IVF works... The egg has been put back in, and then if all goes according to plan, it will continue to grow into a successful pregnancy. Exactly. But I think, without perhaps realising it, you've almost come upon the one last thing that I was hoping you would ask me. You said, if all goes according to plan, implantation occurs and it becomes a successful pregnancy. Do you think it's 100% when that embryo is transferred back into the woman? Is it always likely to be able to implant and then pregnancy continues? No, I mean, I would assume not because you said one in six of infertility is like unexplained. So I'm sure that it's kind of like, well, even if you do all this stuff, you could put it back in and then some people, it just will never happen for them, which is really sad, I think. Would that be true? Your logic is impeccable. It took me a little bit of searching to get some objective data here. There's a lot of stuff on the internet available about success rates of IVF. But when you look at it, what you're actually seeing oftentimes is data from particular clinics. So it's their success rate. And who's to say that they're maybe not just picking the most, the healthiest patients? I'm not going to say they're lying about their data. I'd never say that. But it may be that they are presenting their data in the most favourable light and perhaps ignoring some data which doesn't look quite so good for them. So trusting data on success rates from clinic websites makes me slightly uneasy. But I did find some stuff from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, which I know it's got the word disease in it, but actually collects data on what's called ART, Assisted Reproductive Technology, and IVF, ICSI come under that heading. Their data seems to suggest, and again, I'll put a link in the show notes because you can actually look up by clinic, by state using the CDC websites. Their data seems to suggest that it's anywhere between about 25 and about 60% chance of becoming pregnant from IVF. Oh, wow. That's not as high as I thought it would be. The interesting thing is, that's probably no better, no worse than what happens in a, I'm going to use the word natural, because this is a word that's used in in the literature, in a natural pregnancy. What we mean there is an unassisted pregnancy, a pregnancy where the woman got pregnant by having sex, no test tubes, no Petri dishes involved. And what people don't really realise is, 
there are lots of times, almost certainly, that sex does result in fertilization. But two weeks later, a pregnancy test isn't showing anything. A period is happening because the fertilized egg didn't develop properly. It either didn't start dividing or it got to that blastocyst stage and it didn't implant. And it's been estimated that that's actually occurring somewhere between 40 to 60% of the time. It's difficult to assess this because it's very difficult to get a window into a, a woman's uterus. I mean, remember, all of this stuff is tiny, tiny, tiny. So you have to monitor hormone changes. It's a very tricky thing to really measure and we can't. But the best guesstimates suggest that anywhere between 40 to 60% of the time that a fertilized egg is produced... 40 to 60% of those fertilized eggs won't then implant. Okay, so what you're saying, I think, ma'am, is that whether the egg is fertilized in the IVF process or naturally, they have about the same result of ending up as a real life baby. Yeah, and if we wanted to put a number on it, it's probably somewhere between 25% and 50% of the time a pregnancy is going to get established and going to end up with a live baby at the end. But in both normal pregnancy or both normal fertilization, let's call it that, and assisted fertilization, yeah, the failure rate is pretty enormous. So having a fertilized egg does not mean that a healthy baby is going to come at the end of this, either in IVF or in a natural pregnancy, which I think is a pretty important for people to understand. Fertilized egg does not equate 100% of the time to healthy baby at the end yes because you do hear about people doing like multiple rounds or years of IVF not to mention lots of emotional anguish I think it's a really tough journey I think probably my last question on this is I knew somebody who was doing IVF who had to inject herself with stuff for quite a while in her stomach before guess the egg removal process what is that for so Tess, would you mind if I just because I think it'd be really useful for other people if I just tweet your language one word there yeah, absolutely. We tend to hear out in society the word stomach used or belly or even for British tummy when actually what we really mean is abdomen. So the abdomen is the space between the diaphragm, which sits beneath your lungs and your pelvis. And in your abdomen, you have, oh, the stomach and the liver and the pancreas and the intestines. The stomach is just one organ that sits in the abdomen. Oh, okay, so she's not actually injecting anything to her stomach, she's injecting it into her uterus? Well, that would be a reasonable assessment, or she's just most likely injecting it into her abdomen. Okay, got it. I think they inject actually test it into their bum quite often. And, but what is the injection for? What's yes, that so what they're doing typically is that they're injecting drugs to stimulate the ovaries to produce lots of lovely ripe eggs. Okay, so they're preparing a nice big selection of eggs to be removed. Exactly, because when the rest of us are normally having menstrual cycles, every cycle we're producing, we're ripening in our ovaries one or two eggs. For in vitro fertilization, it would be a great idea if you could get the woman to produce maybe six, eight, ten eggs, because then when they're in the Petri dish, some of them won't fertilize. Some will fertilise but maybe not develop and some will be fertilised, will develop and will be just perfect little blastocysts. So 
the chances of getting that perfect little blastocyst ready for implantation are greater, obviously, if you can fertilize or incubate 10 eggs with sperm instead of just one or two. Yeah, it's basically like if you're trying to grow a tomato plant, putting 30 seeds in the ground as opposed to just one. That is exactly it. Nice. So before we started this conversation, we knew that we wanted to talk about this issue. But we didn't quite know where this conversation was going to go. We knew the basic idea of this conversation. So I'd done a little bit of research. I'd done a little bit of thinking to make sure I was up to speed. And you asked me all the questions that I hoped you would ask me. And I don't have any other things that I thought you might ask me. So we should probably leave it there. That was, I feel, a great conversation. I enjoyed it greatly, Tess. And as always, what should people do if they have any questions or comments or indeed suggestions for follow-up episodes of the podcast? How can they contact us? Oh, so many wonderful ways. You can either go to our website at wtytpod.com and you can click the contact button and send us a message. And it can be thoughts about a previous episode, questions for another episode, really anything. We'd love to hear from you. You can also reach out to us on Instagram, you can shoot us a DM at the Who Told You That podcast. Love it. And what about rating us, Tess? And you know what? We have a hard time with this stuff, don't we? We're British and we kind of feel a bit weird about it. But it would be amazing if people have liked this podcast, if they like this episode or they've enjoyed other episodes, if they could give us a, I hate to ask, a five star rating. Yes, it does feel so uncomfortable to ask, but it really does help us so much. It helps our podcast. It helps us show up on other people's pages and hopefully get them interested in science too. So if you found any of this valuable and you want someone else to find it valuable too, we'd really appreciate a little review. We would. Go to Spotify or wherever you get this podcast. Okie dokie. I think that's enough from us and we will return next week and we will do the episode that we promised last week. Yes, it'll be even better because you had to wait an extra week for it. Oh, yes, I like that. All right. Have a great rest of your weekend, sweetie. Thank you, Mother. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And as a reminder, our conversation here aims to pass along some interesting science and help you develop your sciencey thinking muscles. Neither of us are medical doctors or any type of healthcare professional. So we're absolutely not providing medical advice. You should see your medically qualified professional for that. And whilst all content provided is given in good faith, based on the scientific knowledge base available at the time of recording, if we misspeak or further research changes our understanding or that of the scientific community, we'll try our best to make any necessary corrections, either in a future episode or in our show notes. See See you next time. time!